on part three of our Jewish history. Um, really, I could sum this up with Jewish history and life applications, I suppose. Um, we have been going through and got kind of through the Assyrians and saw how that division of the 12 tribes of Israel in Scripture and how important that is for us to understand what Scripture is saying and to be able to interpret it in context. Um, that is, and we've talked about the Samaritans here earlier, but just to kind of remind you a little bit about where they came from. Like I said, that split between those tribes that we talked about last week is where we are going to get these Samaritans from. These half-breeds, or the, the basically, as far as the Jews were concerned in the time of Jesus, they were Gentiles, they were awful. They were unclean, and they really had nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, Jews wouldn't eat with Samaritans. That's why Jesus, at the woman of the well, when he met her, you know, the disciples were not only surprised that he was talking with a woman, but a Samaritan, no less. Or we have, you know, the parable about the Good Samaritan. And, you know, we often hear that word Good Samaritan, and we just apply that to being a person and not thinking about it as a Samaritan. Like the good, wicked person is, in essence, the way the Jews saw that. And so when Jesus was giving that parable about this good Samaritan comes along and takes care, loves on this person, that was offensive to the Pharisees. Because it just wasn't right. That's the enemy, you might say. And so the Samaritans were these people, in part, when the Assyrians came and took those ten tribes and scattered them out. You might remember the story in the Bible that shortly after that the lions and the wild beasts and everything were conquering and, and taking over the land. And the king says, we need some Jews to go back to the land to, to show us what the gods of the land require. And so they came back. But remember, these are people who didn't quite have it right to begin with. 19, 20, Out of 19 kings, not a single one was godly. And therefore, they were growing up in a culture that had twisted what God wanted, twisted the truth. And so when they came back, they didn't even themselves know how to truly teach them what the God of the land required. And so that land was, you might say, defiled. They primarily spoke the language of Aramaic, which is not a bad thing, but we see that uh, Jesus did speak Aramaic. Uh, we see that many times in Scripture. Uh, there are the book of Daniel, and Ezra, parts of Ezra, that uh, are written in Aramaic. We see um, the Syriac Bible today is also in Aramaic. And where that is location-wise today would be in northern Iraq and also some parts of southern Turkey, but mostly northern Iraq. So these are not Arabs, but Assyrians in a sense. At least they come from the Assyrians. Now, remember, Aram was that main power. Israel had united with them. And then the Assyrians came and had taken over Aram. 
And now the Assyrians are the ones that are going to take over, in essence, the world. They're the dominant power from the 7 to 600 B.C., so just going to kind of review this. But Isaiah 19, verse 23, it is speaking of a future event. Isaiah 19, I encourage you to go read the whole chapter, but it says this uh, of about a highway between Egypt and Assyria, that during the end times, Assyria is going to be playing a very significant role in what's going on. And so when we talk about Assyria, it's easy for us to look about this as some past event. I was talking with Evan today about this too. I just can't get it out of my head. When I go through the book of Daniel, we read Daniel and everybody just looks at Daniel as a prophecy of these four kingdoms. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. But Daniel throughout the book is so clear that he's talking about end times. But when we look at the book of Daniel, we look at it as past history. But yet the book of Daniel is telling us this is also talking about future events. And so that these somehow have to mesh together. Likewise, when you think about Assyria, you can't just think about the past. You have to bring that up to the present and think, well, what is Assyria today? Well, Iraq, Turkey. And so this is somehow going to play in to end times. Go read Isaiah 19. Like I said, we're not going to take the time to go through that verse by verse, but uh, look at that uh, and just to be aware of it. Yeah. Where was the, where was Aramaic from? It really came from, the, from that same area. Aram was the uh, place that Assyria conquered, and so it's kind of basically the same place. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't done a word study or figure out where Arimathea comes from even. That's a good question. I'll have to look at that. Um, Babylon, around 630 to 620 is when we see that Hezekiah, he is at the height of his power. And there are these envoys from Babylon that come to visit him, and he shows them all the treasures that he has. At that time, Babylon was not a superpower, but they were about to become one. The Assyrians were the ones that were the threat. Well, God comes to him and says, you know, those two people, what did you show them? Well, he basically does it through the prophet. Uh, you know, what did you show them? I show them everything I had. Well, God basically is telling me to tell you that there's a day coming when they're going to come and take it all. You can only imagine what was going through Hezekiah's mind at that time, thinking, oh, those were spies? And I just showed him, oh. And then he hears this message that you're going to die. And it's like, oh, no. And, and he prays, and God says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. You won't see the destruction in your lifetime, but your sons are going to see it. And Hezekiah, and this always has bothered me a little bit, thinks, well, good, at least it's not my lifetime. <laughs> but that's what we see recorded in Scripture, and we see around 606 B.C. is when this first invasion from the Babylonians come, and they take some of the more 
intelligent and uh, influential people back with them. Put them under the rule, you're now going to pay taxes to us, and so on. Perhaps that is when Daniel was taken to Babylon at that time in this first wave. And then we see in uh, 606 BC, I'm sorry, uh, 6, 597 BC, that is the second invasion. And that is because Judah started revolting a little bit. And they're going to say, no, you're not. So the king was taken back at that time. And in his place was another guy that they put up into rule. So that is the second invasion. And then the third invasion, I'll get to here in 586 in a minute, but I want to show you this second invasion in Scripture, Jeremiah 29. Verses 4 through 7, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Remember I gave you ten questions about why are Jews this, why are Jews that. One of them was, why do Jews never revolt? And this is one of the reasons why Jews do not revolt. They write about it in the Talmud, they write about it in their histories that God told them when you go into exile, to pray for the peace of that place. That you are to plant and settle in because this is God's doing. You see, they have a different view of life than what we often do. Their view of life is, if God wants me to do this, then this is what God wants me to do. If God is going to punish me, I guess I deserve it. If God is going to bless me, thank you, Jesus. Well, thank you, God, right? We have this attitude that is so different because we don't think like Jews. We think like Greeks, which will be next week's topic. But we think like Greeks, which is different. We think that if God blesses me, I deserved it because I'm such a good Christian. No, we never deserve it. If God brings hardship upon us. It's not, this is my lot in life, but it's usually, what did I do wrong? Or, how can God be a loving God? And we challenge God versus accepting His sovereignty in life. If you look at their history, I'm amazed that... Later on, weeks down the road, I'm going to read some things that just make me teary-eyed thinking about it, about some things that went on in Kiev and other places when the Jews would just literally be led to the slaughter. And one of the things from a perspective of one of the soldiers was he couldn't understand how they were just led quietly like a lamb to the slaughter. Just lined up to be killed as 
we even watched what went on to some extent on October 7th. I was amazed at how little fighting back there was by the people who were being captured. Throughout their history, they are known for people who just don't fight back, which is interesting. But this is one of the reasons why more of the Orthodox <laughs> Jews teach that is because this is your lot in life. God knows what he's doing. So very different. Um, Five eighty six BC becomes the third and the final invasion, and that is when then we are going to see the temple being destroyed and all of the people pretty much going to be taken back. There's some other turns of events in there, but ultimately that's what's going to happen. And from that point on, really, up until nineteen forty eight, it is absolutely incredible that the people of Israel never had their home back. We see them there under Roman rule when Jesus comes. But they never really had the power. The scepter had departed from Judah at that time until 1948. That's why that is such a big deal in history. Is It was the first time that they had authority in the land again since 586 B.C. Just remarkable. The other thing that kind of is amazing here is just Jeremiah is talking about this. We're going to talk a little bit more about Jeremiah and what he was saying to, to the people. But increase in number there. Do not decrease. You know, in speaking with pro-life issues many times, this is one of the things that I talk about is Christians are losing by default. By default, Christians have bought into the lie of the culture. The culture says, you've got how many kids? Four? Three? As if that's some amazing thing, right? That's culture. But God even told from the very beginning, increase, be fruitful, and multiply. He didn't say add, he said multiply. And so... Christians, we should be having children. Now, what's amazing to me is when we look at Islam, do they buy into the lie of the culture? You go to a, a Muslim family, how many kids do you have? Four? Oh, that's it. Right? They haven't bought into the lie of the culture. And instead, what's happening? We see, you know, the CIA fact book and all their statistics showing how Islam is growing by leaps and bounds and just the population, just by default, we will lose. Because we don't take God's plan. We have bought into the plan of the culture, the plan of the world, the plan of our worldview, not a biblical worldview. We're aborting children because we're not ready for them. We're aborting them because we're too young. We're aborting them because, you know, all of these different reasons for murdering our children versus having more or giving them up for adoption. We could talk all night just on that topic alone. I'm not going to. But I want you to think about this 
that this too is very important in the promise or what God commanded them to do when you go into exile. And I want you to know something. I believe right now we are in exile. We are in exile right now. We'll come back to that. Why did God take them into exile to begin with? Well, sin. It can be summed up in that one word, sin. Disobeying God. Sin is lawlessness. Jeremiah 16, verse 12. But you have behaved more wickedly than your fathers. See how each of you is following the stubbornness of his evil heart instead of obeying me. Now, by the way, what we've been, I kind of switched gears there without kind of making a note of it. The Samaritans were the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came and conquered the ten tribes, a few of them went down to the southern kingdom of Judah and stuck around. But now, Babylon, there was, they didn't have to conquer any other Israel tribes. They were gone. Babylon came and now conquered Judah. So we're talking about Judah here. Remember a few weeks ago I was talking about Deuteronomy 31 and how you know we always take these promises. God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But in Deuteronomy 31, He gives you that promise. I will never forsake you. But then it says, if you forsake me, or because you forsook me. Then a couple of verses later, now I will forsake you. Wait a minute. I will never forsake you. Now I forsake you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I'll give you all things through Scripture taken out of context is right. You see, God will never forsake His own. But when we turn our backs on God, there will be the wrath of God that will come upon you. It's that simple. That's what, go read it, Deuteronomy 31, and you can find it all throughout the New Testament. This is what's going on. These are God's people. How can God turn his back on his own people? Because they forsook him. Because his heart, uh, he followed the stubbornness of his evil heart instead of obeying me. One of the big things that is talked about in Scripture was they did not keep the Sabbath. That is one of the major reasons the exile came. Which is one of the major reasons why they sinned. Because they did not keep the Sabbath. They go hand in hand. We, I'll show you this here. But this is exactly why the scriptures say that there will be 70 years of captivity for the Jews. Because you didn't keep the Sabbaths. Like I told you to. Now again... There were many other sins, but ultimately it comes down to that. If you don't take, if you don't have time to spend a day with the Lord, then you're not going to be following God. You're not really growing in your relationship to God. He's just your insurance policy. Leviticus 25, and jumping around here, verses 2 through 4, and then chapter 26. It says, when you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crops. But during the seventh year in the land shall have a Sabbath rest. 
And then chapter 26, verse 33, it continues along this theme. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become a waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land will rejoice, rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest, which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. Here is scripture saying one of the reasons that God destroyed them or allowed the Babylonians to come and for the length of time they were able to come was because you didn't obey my commands. That's how much God saw this as a big deal. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21 says, The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. This is where we get there's 490 years. Other verses talk about this, that there would be 490 years of, of, of sins to atone for. 70 years allows for you know, uh, every seventh Sabbath, 70 times 7 is 490. And that is where you're getting that 490 year punishment from. Because they did not observe their Sabbaths. God said that they were going to be removed if, he did not, if they did not keep the commandments. Here in Jeremiah 25, it says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for your calamity, to give you a future and a hope. How many times have we heard that verse, by the way? I know God, the plans that he has for you, plans for you to prosper. Out of context, right? Let's look at scripture in context. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. I believe this is also prophetic of end times. We could give you, I mean, really all of the Old Testament somehow is prophetic of end times. You read about Hezekiah and the Assyrians coming up against Hezekiah and 185,000 people, you know, being killed of the Assyrian army. But yet we go to Isaiah and you see the same story but in reference to more right in the middle of all this prophetic end time stuff. And then you go to Revelation and you see there's going to be an army coming up against Jerusalem, just like there was in the days of Hezekiah. And then you're going to see that the word of the Lord goes out and it's going to destroy in this great battle all these people, just like it did in the days of Hezekiah. Likewise, it says here that he's going to bring us back to the place from where I sent you into exile the place from which you started, the place from which I called you. And where do we go? The Bible time and time again takes us back to Zion, Mount Zion. All of where this is centered. 
In verse 13, I got to ask, this is the question I ask myself in preparing this, is are we seeking God with all our heart? Or do we have kind of a half-hearted approach, kind of a Saul idea? Or maybe even a Solomon-type Christianity? That... It says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I have to say, we've had hundreds of conversations before Bible study, after Bible study, out of Bible study, with other people about the churches today and the compromise. We were just talking in there about a church that had compromise that is so far beyond compromise that I, it just breaks my heart that we can even call this a church that's doing these things. But yet they claim to seek God. They claim to know God. But they follow the ways of the world, justifying their ways rather than going to God's word to figure out what they should do to obey I see it many times, as we've said many times here, what is so sinful about us trying to keep the law of God? What's, what's sinful about that? What's so bad? Oh, it's just, you know, it's legal. Jesus took care of it for you. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to save myself. <laughs> Heaven forbid. But did I want to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? Like one of the, you know, it is one of the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, but, you know, that, that's going to breed legalism. Stop shedding your flashlight on my sin, Brian. Yeah. You see, I think that's part of it. Just like what John says is these people refuse to come into the light for fear that their deeds might be exposed. I think people feel guilty because I think inside their heart they know that God is calling them, but we, we don't want to. We're going to justify it with our worldview, with our culture. There isn't anything sinful about keeping the law. I just find it interesting that people find it more offensive to try and keep the law than to ignore the law. If you ignore the law, nobody's offended. You keep the law, it's offensive. You might remember Ezekiel 44 that I have said here before. I love that verse. It's part of chapter 43, maybe. It's part of my memory verses. I think it's chapter 43, verses 10 and 11, maybe, but where it goes on and it says, show the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its exits, its entrances, its whole design. But I love that part that says, Reveal or show the temple to the people of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their sins. When I ask people to think about what the temple is, it's, oh, it's the sacrifices were made. Why is that going to be offensive to them? Why would that bring shame to them? Because it's to highlight the sin. Well, likewise, when Scripture says today... Reveal the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sin. I want you to remember you are the temple of God. 
And as us being the temple of God, that is going to expose the shame and sin in other people's lives if we follow the laws of God. If we are separate and holy and sanctified by God. This is why, and I probably a year or two ago, I remember talking about some friends of ours that I felt a little bit of bitterness in my heart for. And I had asked myself, why is that bitterness in my heart? Because all they're doing is right. And I realized it's because they're doing it better than I am. But you know what? <laughs> that was good. That was a good one. What they did better than me was that their kids couldn't watch as much on TV as my kids could. <clears throat> they didn't have internet. <clears throat> they didn't have some of these things that it was so easy to look at them as if this was like, it's a little bit going far, you know, a little legalism there, don't you think? But they were right. They were the light in revealing the temple to me showed me my sin, and I was ashamed of my sin. And that's what we are to do. And when it says you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, I know so many people who are out there trying to find God and they can't find him and they can't figure out why God isn't listening to their prayers. But yet, just as David said in is it Psalm 66, where or 33, I don't know, I always get my numbers mixed up, where he says, if I held iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. Or Proverbs 28, where it says that if you turn a deaf ear to God's law, even your prayers are detestable to him. We got all these people in our country, in the churches, seeking God, but refusing to submit to God. That sums up Judah right there. We are no different than those of Judah when the Babylonians came to conquer. They went they had their synagogues, or their temple. They went to the temple all the time. At that point, they didn't have their synagogues, by the way. I'll come to that later. But they were going to their temple, but then after temple, they'd go and live life. There was no separation, no holiness, no keeping the commandments, no keeping the Sabbath. Let's open up the gates on the Sabbath, bring them in. Remember, it's, is it Ezra that has to come and clean house it? Or is it Nehemiah? I don't remember. Ezra or Nehemiah that does that? Nehemiah. He says, these gates are shut. You come in again. I'm going to come and pull your beard out. I'm going to give you a beating. Where are those people today? Oh, camp, because that would be legalism to try to obey God's word. Again, legalism is obeying God's word because you're trying to earn merit earn your salvation, but be, to obey God because you love him, that is not legalism. You know, it's funny, I never, if my kids would go clean their room without, I never was, oh, we better, listen, you better be careful because that's going to lead to legalism someday. <laughs> we expected our children to obey us. 
And you know what? It gave me such joy in my heart to see them obey without me even having to tell them to do it. And they weren't even trying to, you know, earn something. The rules, yeah, the rules are for their good. That's right. Good point. Very good addition. So just think about that there. These, again, are the reasons for the exile. And I'm saying that the reasons for us being in exile, for us not understanding the word of God as deep as we should is because we have watered it down and we have kept it so surface and we're going to do things in our cultural, in our worldview way, not let Scripture tell me what my life should look like. Not letting Scripture tell me what, the way I should dress, the way I should talk, who I should hang out with, what I should spend my money on, what I should watch on TV. Well, I, I get to decide that. Deuteronomy 28 continues here in verse 15 and then following in verse 36 and 64, just the whole context here of the verse or the chapter. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or to your fathers. Do we know what the curses are? Um, well, yeah, the curses kind of talk about it in Deuteronomy. Good question. Some of the curses where you're not going to get rain, you were going to go into exile. Your enemies were going to overtake you. All of those things. A lot of bad things. It says, There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods. It's amazing. You know, the Lord indeed has scattered the nations. What I find amazing about this is when God tells us this, look what book this is in. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. They had no kings. And he's saying, you're going to have some. I know what you're going to do. You're going to ask for a king, and I'm going to give you a king, but that king is going to do all these bad things. I'm going to, I know where I'm going to send you to this area of Babylon, but they aren't even on a blip of the radar. But God's saying that's what's going to happen. God knows history. He's in charge of it. That's how the book of Revelation, it, it's much the same. It, it tells us what's going to happen even before it happens. So why did God exile them and not just, you know, kill them or do some other punishment? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly. We can maybe infer from what scripture does tell us. Kind of what we were saying before. Remember that God chose them to be in a certain place in, on the earth. A place in which where anybody that was going to go was going to have to meet them and going to have to hear about the God of Israel. That they would be an influence and a light to the world. A blessing to the nations. As we talked about here a couple of weeks ago, God's call to Abraham was so that he would be a blessing to the nations. Rome... Islam, America, even the church today have all been blessed when the Jews were blessed or when they blessed the Jews, you might say. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Check it out through history. There isn't a country in the world that cursed Israel that did not get punished. Not a one. 
Not a country in the world that didn't bless Israel, that didn't receive blessings. God's plan continues even with the sin of Israel that we just talked about. And I think in some cases God uses it to test the nations to see how they're going to treat his people when they're in exile. Remember the Israelites going through Edom and whatnot. Edom, their future depended on how they treated the Israelites in exile going through the desert. And he says, because you did, you turned away my people, your brothers, because of that, you are now in trouble. The book of Obadiah. Because you rejoiced when they fell, you will be destroyed. Time and time again, this is what we see. Romans, what does Romans tell us too? This is similar. Romans says this, that if their reconciliation, or I'm sorry, if their re rejection means reconciliation for the world. If the Jews' rejection of the gospel means reconciliation for the rest of you guys, how much more will their fullness be but life from the dead? I love that verse. We as Christians ought to be praying for Jews to come to know the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. Because in praying for them, guess what? You're blessed. Their rejection was reconciliation for you. You got to get the gospel because God, you know, God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all. But it says, so how much more will their fullness bring? How much more when they are welcomed in and they receive me as, as Lord and Savior? It's going to be life from the dead. You might even say the resurrection of the dead. Because we see the scripture saying that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And then the saying will be true, right? All Israel will be saved. When they come in, there is a blessing for us. And yet today, as a modern Christian church, we hardly ever witness to Jews. We've made it almost impossible to witness to them with our Gentile Jesus. But yet, as I said last week, every time they go in the New Testament to a new place, they always first witnessed to the Jew and then went to the Gentile. We, to the Gentile, forget the Jew. There's something here that is important. I think God is testing us in some way. How will you treat my people? Will you... Will you share the gospel with them? Will you do everything it takes to get the gospel to them? Not just get them back to their land. Share the gospel with them. The reason that Messianic Jews exist, as we said, is to be a righteous remnant in order to bless the nations. We've said it before, the definition of a Jew today there's a cultural aspect and a covenant aspect. Jesus even said to the Pharisees who are DNA Jews, you are children of the devil. When we talk about Jews, they are the ones that have the faith of Abraham. They are the ones that we are grafted into. And they are the ones that are called the remnant. One of the things that this series you're going to find out that I find so fascinating
is God's faithfulness to the remnant. He has always had a remnant. There is a good chance that Christopher Columbus may have been a Jew. At the very least, he had people that were Jews. And it seems that he postponed his trip to rescue Jews from the pogroms and brought them to America. You will see historical evidence backing this up. You're going to see how I think God even brought a remnant to America to be faithful to his promises. Abraham debated with God for Sodom, if just ten righteous people, will you spare it? God, for a remnant, would have spared that city. I frankly think that's why the United States of America has not fallen yet, because there is a remnant that God has here. And, but when that remnant stops being a remnant, when that remnant stops standing up, that's when you need to look out. In 615 to 610 B.C., Jeremiah and Josiah were good friends. When Josiah dies, all the kings after him are ungodly. But there was still a righteous remnant among the people. You never had another good king, but you had good people. Just like in our country today, we don't have a godly president. But there's a remnant to this day in this country. And God is going to keep them there in order to be a blessing to the nations, to the people. As soon as they stop being that blessing, he'll raise up a remnant somewhere else. He'll move a remnant somewhere else. But God is going to be faithful. That is a promise. To preserve the nations, like I said, there is one in the U.S. Without that, the U.S.A. will be DOA. And that's why it's important that we as Christians take a stand. That we as Christians realize, listen, I wasn't put here on this earth to see how many boats I can collect, how many guns I can collect. I was put here on this earth to be a blessing to the nations. I am a remnant. And I need to take the role and the calling God has given me seriously. What am I here for in this life? What is my lot in life? You need to think more like a Jew in that way, and less like a Greek. Jews became a nation among the nation of Babylon. They retained their identity even though they were in a foreign place. And I think that is very, very important to ask ourselves, have we retained our Christian identity, even though we live in a foreign land, a land that is not godly. Israel did. They retained. They remained separate. Today, there is very little to differentiate a Christian from a non-Christian walking down the street or even having a conversation with them in Walmart. Very little in most cases. 
So they had a problem when they went to Babylon and were taken captive for 70 years. How are they going to follow the commands of God? Especially some of them that were specific to the land of Israel. How are you going to keep the Sabbath when your master tells you you're not allowed to stop work on Saturday? You're working today. And so all these problems came about. And this is where you're going to see all these other rules of Torah that came about that aren't necessarily in Scripture. Babylon changed Judaism forever. And that's the other reason I think it's important to look at this history. They had to figure out a way to apply these rules in a foreign land that were intended for their own land. Sometimes I think we have the same problem because I believe that we are in Babylon. And we can't do all of the laws. People say, well, so you're going to try and keep the Sabbath, so do you do this? And they're going to take these obscure little verses in Leviticus and whatnot that, frankly, I don't have all the answers to. Some of those were specific to the land. Some of them we just can't do today. While we can't do them now, I can tell you this. My belief is this. When the Lord comes back, you are going to keep every single one of those Levitical laws. Because God is going to take you back to the promised land. And His land will be ruled by His rules. I look forward to that day, frankly, when we will be removed out of Babylon and we get to go back to the promised land. But right now, we live in Babylon. And it's going to be difficult. And I don't have answers for all of you for all of those questions. Just as they didn't have answers. And they waded through it. All I know is I don't really need to have all those answers. I just need to have a heart for the Lord. Because my salvation isn't dependent upon having this ability or knowledge. My salvation is because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. What He has done for me. The other thing that happens here as it changes Judaism forever, number one is they became a nation among the nations. They became separate, a separate people, and they had to figure out how to be separate. Number two, it began anti-Semitism, primarily because of number one. They became separate. Throughout history, the Jews, they ate differently, they dressed differently, they talked differently, they looked different. Everything was different about a Jew. You recognize them from 500 yards away. And let me tell you, if you look different than the world, you will be persecuted. As a Christian, you look different than the world, and you stand up for the scriptural truths, you will look different and you will be persecuted. So, the root of anti-Semitism, semi, is that go back to Sumerian? Oh, you had a, a slide earlier. That no, no, um, that's Shem, because of Shem, I think, is where that comes from. Yeah. Um, now again, anti-Semitism isn't just because of this, but this is one of the reasons. I think it's, it's basically Satan is ultimately the cause, the seed in the battle that's going on. And will, that's the prophecies. Number three, it's the rise of the synagogue in the 500 BCs. Prior to, you don't see God telling them to go build a synagogue anywhere in Scripture, do you? No, 
there was a temple. And the temple was always the meeting place. Well, now the temple's been destroyed in Babylon. And so now, how are you going to meet? And so they would build synagogues. Basically, in Hebrew, it's Knesset. Today, the Knesset is the assembly. Uh, they're ruling assembly, basically, you know, they're governing authority in Israel. So they, they basically had these Knessets where they would meet. Now, with that said, only about 51% today have membership in a synagogue. And just because you have membership doesn't mean you attend either. So 51% of Jews even have membership in synagogues today. Where most people meet, if they're Jews, they're called Jewish community centers. Even after the second temple, the synagogue was the main gathering place. In the days of Jesus, the synagogue was the main meeting place. But not today. Today, it has become more of these Jewish community centers. So these are issues that they had to deal with. It's just like us. I mean, in China, if you go to China and you speak against the government there in China, you might be arrested and you could say, well, hey, you know, my con the Constitution says that I have the freedom of speech. Well, the problem is you're not in America, right? These rules aren't going to apply to you in China. They don't care about your Constitution. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bow down. Okay, we won't. Their rules weren't going to apply. We're kind of in the same boat. For this number three here, when there was no temple in the synagogue becoming the place to meet, um, it's important for you to understand that the temple of Jesus' day has been replaced today by synagogues. And we, that's going to be important later, just in their thinking and why they think the way they do, how some of these teachings came about. So, that, was a, that would have been a synagogue, yep, yep. They, and that came after Babylon, that those synagogues were in each city, the synagogue in Capernaum that we were in and so on. Yep, they would not have had that the, the you know prior to Babylon ultimately. Why is it that synagogues stayed in vogue even after the second temple was rebuilt? I think probably because it was just a community thing and just having a place outside because you could only sacrifice in Jerusalem. So a synagogue was just like a church building. So it just I think became easier for them to meet together that way. So, so what's that? Having cathedrals outside of Rome. Yeah, yeah. Cathedrals outside of Rome is a good example. That's, yes. That's going to be coming up. We're going to explain where that came from, but yes. Yep. So, yeah, I won't get into that tonight because that takes a little bit more to explain where the Sadducees come from, where the Pharisees come from, and so on. But we will be talking about that. I'm going to kind of close out tonight by showing you Babylon and the, the faithfulness of God and his promises again. Um, 
here you can uh, see this is ancient Babylon today. This palace on top of an artificial hill was built by the former dictator of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. It is now abandoned, but for our purposes it serves as a landmark that can be seen from different vantage points in this vast city. The red dot marks on Kuldave's plan where Saddam Hussein, much later in history, built his palace. Our first camera position is here, looking to the north. A few miles to the north is the ancient mound called Babil, which marks the northernmost portion of the city wall, and therefore the northern boundary of Babylon. For our next camera position, we'll go to the mound of Babil and look back in the opposite direction. Below we see the mound of ruins of Babil. Sodom's palace can now be seen in the distance far to the south. Turning left, we are now looking southeast. Notice the nearby smokestack. From this vantage point, the ancient wall line of Babylon's eastern city wall can be seen. This is the eastern boundary of Babylon. For our next camera position, we'll go to the southeastern corner of Babylon where the eastern wall line meets the southern wall line. The southeast corner of fortified Babylon is seen below, where again the city's southern wall line meets the eastern wall line. Saddam's palace is now seen several miles away to the northeast. When following the eastern city wall line for a few miles to the north, the smokestack and mound of Babil eventually come into view. next camera position will be here, looking south. The southern boundary is marked by the end of the uninhabited land. The modern town seen in the background is on the southern side of the city wall, and therefore outside of ancient Babylon. In the late 1800s, the location of villages are shown on Kuldave's plan. Over thousands of years, the course of the Euphrates River has changed. The ancient riverbed is seen here. The villages marked in the plan 
some of which still currently exist, are in the old riverbed and therefore outside of the city walls. Saddam Hussein built his palace in the old riverbed where the village marked DK on the plan was located. As it was at the time of Koldave's excavations, so it remains true today. There is no town or village inside the ancient city walls of Babylon. The city lies desolate and uninhabited. So these are the ruins of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is where Saddam Hussein focused his restoration work. So we're in the palace area where a lot of uh, building has taken place over many different generations, and so you have stamped onto bricks the builders of, uh, of these various levels. And so anywhere else you do archaeology, you have to kind of guess who the builder is based on pottery and things like that. But um, here in Babylon, it's, it's all stamped. The brickwork is stamped. And so here you see stamped uh, brickwork, um, and these are from Saddam Hussein. So a lot of what you see in, the, um, in Babylon today is reconstruction by Saddam. And he did the same thing. He stamped the bricks that, um, that he was using to, uh, to do the restorations. Um, here you can see, if you look at this wall, you can see the ancient bricks and then the restoration above it. Here is a, uh, a brick that's stamped with Nebuchadnezzar. So it's important for me to point out that though Saddam Hussein did a lot of restoration work around in and around the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that does not mean that it's occupied. It's not occupied. It's just restoration work to the ruins themselves. Outside of the restoration work that Saddam Hussein did, the city all lies in the same desolation that it has for thousands of years. Moving along the line of the ancient processional way, we see Nebuchadnezzar's palace. What remains of the Ishtar Gate. Several temples to the gods and goddesses of Babylon. And far to the south, we have the sanctuary of Marduk. And this is all that remains to be seen of the most important sanctuary that once dominated the city. The sanctuary of Marduk, whom the Babylonians believed to be the king of the gods, this sanctuary included two temples, a towering ziggurat and a lower temple which housed a huge golden statue of Marduk seated on a throne. Currently, there is hardly anything left of what once was the pride and glory of Babylon. So just like we were showing you there with Nineveh, Babylon's the same. God's prophecies are literally still true, even to the point the cities are still outside of the wall area. And I just find that fascinating. Probably not. No, that's kind of outside further. But... Um, like I said, we know based on the bricks, you know, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar stamped and the ones Saddam Hussein stamped later. But these verses speaking of Babylon in Jeremiah 50, so desert creatures and hyenas will live there and so on. That was actual, those hyenas that you were hearing was him recording that at night. And 
same thing here, Isaiah 13, 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. This was the ruling kingdom of the world. Brian. World. Brian, do we know why there's no cities in Babylon? Because God said that they would not, he was going to destroy it and nobody would ever live there again. Yep, good question. So, this is exactly what we see. And guys, this is this could be the future of the United States. You think, there's no way we could fall. We are a world power. If the remnant falls asleep, if the remnant doesn't stand, this is the promise God has for any nation that refuses and rejects him. Any nation. So kind of keep that in mind. So with that said, um, I'm going to stop there. I have about five, six more slides, but I'm going to stop here and pick up with that. There's just a real quick part that I can tie into next week's as we get into Medes and Persians and then to the Greeks. And next week we're going to talk about how the Greek thinking versus a Jewish thinking and start to develop a little bit more um, why we are who we are, why we think the way we think, and examine that next to the scriptures. So we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for just the evidences that you leave around us here. Your word is faithful, Lord, that when you write it, it is sure. And it will not be changed, not by man, not by you, not by anybody. Lord, may you just raise us up as a remnant to be those who will be a blessing to the nations around us, to be a blessing to all those around us, that we would not compromise, but that we would take your word seriously, your commands seriously, and that the law of the Lord would become a delight in our lives. We thank you for this in the name of Yeshua Jesus. Amen.